Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. Cryptocurrencies and crypto assets have been one of the fastest growing areas of finance for the last few years, but they're also one of the most opaque areas of the financial markets. Now the world's leading academic institutions are gearing up to map the sector. One of those institutions is the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance, which is part of the university's Judge Business School. It's now one of the main research hubs for crypto-based finance. It publishes a widely followed crypto asset benchmarking study, and I'm joined on this episode of the podcast by Apolline Blondin, who's the leader of Cambridge University's crypto asset research program. Apolline, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Um, Could you start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your area of work? Thank you for having me, having me on, first of all. Um, so I'm a research associate at the Centre for Alternative Finance at the University of Cambridge. Um, and I lead the, the Centre's research programme on crypto assets and uh, blockchain. Okay, great. So you've just published your third global crypto asset benchmarking study. Uh, what, what challenges did you face when putting the survey together, getting people to respond? And how happy are you with the way things have gone? So I think we're lucky because we've been doing this since 2017 now. So we definitely have a database of contacts we know we can rely on when we have a new survey coming up. Uh, but always the challenge is to have, you know, a geographically distributed sample. Um, so to try to, you know, improve the, the representativity of the sample, we always translate the survey. So this year, for the first time, it was translated in eight different languages. Um, we also partner with local industry associations so that they can distribute the survey to their members. Um, so I think, yeah, that's clearly the main the main challenge. Um, there are sometimes some privacy concerns around, you know, the way data is stored, etc. But the fact that we, you know, are part of the university means that we're also held against significantly high standards. So I think people are rather confident to share data with us. Um, but no, we had a fairly good response rate this year. So um, about 280 responses. So that's about 100 more than uh, 2018. So yeah, hoping that's yeah, it will, we will add 100 more next year again. Yeah, certainly looking down the number of uh, institutions that uh, contributed to the survey, I'm looking at their logos at the beginning of the report. And it's, uh, it's an impressive cross section of, uh, of the industry. Yeah, I mean, some some companies didn't want to disclose their participation for for privacy concerns, uh, but yeah, we definitely have a, a good good representation of the industry. Um, and in, in particular, we were very happy to have more Chinese companies. Uh, that was really difficult back in 2018 because of the ban that the government introduced in September 2017, and so a lot of Chinese, I mean, formerly Chinese exchanges were very reluctant to participate in the survey which wasn't the case this year. Um, so we have a better representation of the Chinese market, which I think is, is a good thing. Yeah. So how representative do you think your survey now is in terms of portraying crypto asset activity worldwide? There are clearly some areas of the world where uh, governments are pretty secretive or, or countries are pretty secretive about um, their involvement in, let's say, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, because they may be on the sanctions list for other other countries. Uh, you know, Do you feel you're getting into all the corners of the market or are there still some areas that you would like to get into further? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So there are definitely some geographic areas that are lacking behind. So um, Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, we know that the market is not necessarily huge in terms of you know number of firms, uh, but we're definitely trying to improve on that side. And then Middle Eastern and um, Middle East is also 
kind of lacking a little bit behind, especially when it comes to mining, because we suspect that there is a significant amount of uh, mining activities. I mean, especially, for instance, in places like Iran. Uh, but, I mean, we try to to get in touch with Iranian miners, for instance, but that remains kind of uh, difficult. So, yeah, there are definitely some geographic areas where we could improve. Uh, but I think for the rest of the world regions, we we did a fairly good job this year. Yeah. And, and mining, uh, you mentioned, it's obviously one of the more secretive crypto asset businesses, given that miners may not want to, pu- may not want to publicize what they're doing you know, to their local authorities. How did you manage to get more than 100 entities to respond to the questionnaire? Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. So um, we were lucky, actually, to be invited to really good uh, events uh, in October 2019 um, in Chengdu, in Sichuan, in China. Uh, where we had the opportunity to meet a lot of miners uh, from China, from Kazakhstan, um, from Malaysia, from North America, obviously, because we were already pretty well connecting to with North American and Canadian miners. Uh, but the fact that we participated in that event, that was a three days event, so we were able to kind of, you know, spread the word about our research, um, and then. You know, it's really crucial once you have a contact that can be an entry point to, you know, further. Uh, aspect or like part of the industry that always helps quite a lot um so yeah i think that's that how we got there but again some some are a bit more secretive than than others for sure yeah yeah i found the mining section of your report really interesting um one thing that struck me was that uh you make an estimate of the proportion of uh, bitcoin mining that comes from that is powered by renewable energy sources you estimate it's 39 percent of mining activity worldwide that's some way short of uh, an estimate that i've seen given by CoinShares, a digital asset company they say 74 percent is powered by renewables where, where do you think that dis- big discrepancy comes from in interpreting the mining data yeah, so um, just before I dive into this, so actually the 39% is um, for total proof of work mining. So it's not just Bitcoin right. and it's not okay. it's not weighted, uh, but we do have an estimate for Bitcoin mining that is weighted according to the share of hash power coming from the different regions. And it's more around 29%. So it's there's a table in the report as well. But you're right. So there is a huge discrepancy uh, with some estimates we've seen from other research studies. Um, and so, for instance, the coinshares one that you mentioned, um, I think the discrepancy comes from mainly one part, which is that uh, the estimates of um, hash power coming from Citroën is much higher than what we have found uh, when we released this Bitcoin mining map in April this year. So I think the estimate from uh, Citroën is about 54%. Um, you know, throughout the year, whereas our estimate is that it is more around 35% during the rainy season, which is from April to October. Um, and then a lot of the mining activity then get relocated in uh, non-renewable based uh, regions like Xinjiang or Inner Mongolia. So I think that's where uh, maybe the discrepancy lies primarily. Um, the, the mining map we also had um, kind of highlight other regions to where there is significant level of activity. Uh, like Kazakhstan, and we know, again, thanks to the survey data, that Kazakhstan is mainly powered by coal. Um, so I think that's where, yeah, that's that explains the differences between their estimates and, and ours. Right. So basically, in the regions of the world where coal um, power is, is, is still, uh, or coal-powered um, electricity is still uh, cheap, it's pretty, it's difficult to get miners to switch away from that source of energy. Precisely. So the, the argument in the industry has always been to say, oh, you know, miners get uh, electricity that is 30% cheaper in Sichuan during the rainy season. So that explains that 
you know, the majority of mining comes from renewables and in particular hydroelectric. So this is true, but only during the rainy season and it's completely, you know, um, offset by the rest of the year where miners are in other regions, what are, which are primarily coal based, like Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia. Um, yeah. I mean, but in general, do you think that the, under, the kind of the, the broad, the global understanding of the you know the energy sources for uh, cryptocurrency mining uh, have, have have improved? There was a lot of very sensationalist uh, headlines in the press when Bitcoin, you know, uh, re- reached its uh, peak in December two thousand and seventeen about the you know, the colossal waste of energy. Do you think that the argument has become more nuanced, or is it still is it still subject to these sort of uh, headlines about energy yeah. wastage and? That's that's a good question because that's really why we got into that research as well because we wanted to address this debate which we felt was not nuanced at all. Um, yeah. So it, it is still true that you know if you talk to people who are completely you know uh, foreign to the industry and have very limited uh, knowledge or understanding of the industry, the thing they often heard is that yeah, Bitcoin mining is consuming a lot of energy. Uh, but it seems like when you ta- start talking to people who have a bit bit more familiar with the industry uh they kind of get the nuances the fact that first of all it might come from renewable it might come from surpluses of uh, electricity etc so i'm i'm hoping that we're getting towards a more yeah balanced uh debate um, and, and how big how big do you think the the um the potential is for um surplus renewable energy to be um devoted to Cryptocurrency mining. You, you pointed out in your report that there have been a, a couple of initiatives in in the US that uh, aim to use stranded gas resources to, mm-hmm. to power cryptocurrency mining. Do you think this is a trend which is just beginning and could spread? I mean, it, it, it is a trend. It seems very minor at the moment. Um, we saw recently, I think it was um, this uh, Norway uh, public companies that signed a deal with. Um, with Cruiseway, I think, in North America to install some of their Bitcoin, uh, you know, transportable data center uh, onto their um, their ex- ex- exploration sites and then use some of that uh, strand gas to power some of these machines. So, you know, it, it might develop further in the future. For now, it's still very marginal, uh, but there is a potential if, uh, you know, if, if these industries that are producing surpluses become aware of the the opportunity that Bitcoin mining offers. Yeah. I, I, I noticed that you, in your report that you you pointed out the increasing financialization of Bitcoin mining, you know, through the use of uh, financial contracts like derivatives that help miners to manage their um, hash power consumption or to, to hedge their their hash rates um, into the future. Uh, I wrote an article a while ago saying that this Bitcoin mining was probably one of the riskiest industries in the world because you'd had not only the cri- cryptocurrency volatility to deal with, but the the cost of the hardware was sort of shooting up and down in the secondary market. Do you think this is helping the the industry to become a bit more predictable for those involved, or is it still sort of kind of a, a, a boom and bust cycle type uh, industry? Yeah, so there's been a lot of discussion about this this year, um, and it's still very much in its infancy because there are a couple of things that need to be resolved for that to become maybe a bit more widespread. And there are some people very quite skeptical, or like yeah, skeptical in the industry in the sense that um, because of uh, you know the lack of uh, accurate valuation methodology, it's very hard to uh, price uh, the price of the value of hash rates. There is also a lot of unpredictability, etc. So these is uh, why a lot of these contracts that have been offered by uh, certain companies or certain exchanges 
um, are only offered for a very short-term period, like a quarter or a few months. Um, And that's probably not interesting enough for miners who have, you know, expenditure planned for over a year or something like that. So they need a bit more visibility than just, you know, uh, three to four months horizon. Uh, so it, it might develop further if we if the, the companies are, that are offering these financial services are able to solve some of these challenges. Um, and that, that, would, that would help miners to improve their cash flow situation by having, you know, uh, by improving their liquidities as well. Yeah. You mentioned in the report that Chinese um, uh, miners have an advantage, uh, a competitive advantage, because a lot of the mining equipment is produced in China and they have so they have shorter supply chains. I understand that the machines may even be configured for, you know, for the benefit of local miners when they're when they're produced. You know, how significant is that competitive advantage? Are other areas of the world catching up when it comes to developing the hardware or the developing the chips that are needed for the mining? Or is it still a significant uh, uh, advantage that they have? Yeah, I think uh, Chinese miners still have a competitive advantage. So if you look at the cost breakdown figure we provide for Chinese hashers and U.S. Uh, miners, it's about uh, half uh, the share of what uh, American miners dedicate to, to capital equipment. So I think it's around 36% for uh, Chinese miners and like 52% for American miners of total cost that goes to capital equipment and the reason being yeah the you know the local uh, business culture the fact that there are shorter supply chain uh recently you know with the covid crisis obviously a lot of um of uh, uh manufacturers were not able to ship their machines overseas um we also saw the big main drama that probably kind of also slow down the distribution of the machines so yeah it's uh i think they still have an advantage there um i mean the chinese miners now we, there was, um, I think it was a couple of days ago, uh, where MicroBT announced that they're opening uh, um, a facility as well in North America to serve the North American markets. So that might, you know, help improve uh, the situation for North American miners when it comes to accessing hardware. Um, but in addition to that, I mean, non-Chinese miners also have to, you know, pay for shipping costs. Uh, North American miners, I mean, U.S. miners have to pay uh, the additional tariffs. So, yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of things they have to uh, solve if they want to become as competitive when it comes to hardware procurement. Yeah. Why are miners in some... You mentioned the report that miners in certain parts of the world, I believe Kazakhstan uh, to some extent in Canada, certain parts of Canada, and I think also in China, was it, that are receiving some local governmental support. Why Why is that? Why, why are local governments uh, uh, subsidizing cryptocurrency mining? Yeah, that was, first of all, we were very surprised to see how high the share of miners that report receiving governmental support was. So it's about 28%. Um, and so, yeah, as you said, um, of these 28%, it's primarily Chinese miners, uh, Kazakh miners and Canadians one. Um, so it was, there was a bit of announcement in, in Chinese media about, for instance, the Sichuan local government uh, providing um, a certain like a, a price for electricity for miners that will come and uh, tap into this surplus of uh, hydroelectricity. And so that's something we were aware of. We also knew that there's been some sort of like agreement uh, from between some um, Kazakh miners and, and, and local governments. But we were still yeah, very surprised to see that. Um, why would governments? Uh, that is a good question. That is a good question. I mean, I guess from from a Chinese perspective, it's again an industry where uh, Chinese have an advantage and represent most of the 
most of the um, you know activities. So maybe the the government see there like an, an advantage as well. Um, but for other governments, it's what I was quite surprised actually is that I expected some of these governmental support to be more in the form of a unique agreement that would have been entered by the organization and the local um, government. But from what Miners report is that it's actually a locality focused uh, support, which means that it's um you know a subsidy that businesses within the region have, for instance, when it comes to electricity. Um, so yeah, I think there is a lot more to be uh, investigated in in, in that. Yeah, interesting, interesting trend. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, um, you you talk, talk about um, some of the incentive models involved in um, mining pools, the way that the pool operators work with the people who've signed up to the pool. Um, but you also talk about some of the perhaps problems in in governance of miners that result from these incentives. Could you talk a little bit about? What's going on there and what you see as the main weaknesses in the way the mining sector is governed? Yeah, so um, some of the primary concern of miners remains the centralization of hash power in terms of uh, ownership and location. Um, And also the the production sites or the production of hardware manufacturers. And there is also a certain concern at the pool level and the way a pool have some sort of censorship power over miners, because ultimately they are the one decided on what work will be performed by the miners. Um, And so that has been very much discussed over the past two years. And um, and there's been a few proposals to improve the mining protocols used by miners to connect to the pools. Uh, one such proposal was, for instance, Better Hash by Matt Corallo, um, and then later on um, incentivized by actually the, the, the proposal put forth by Matt Corallo, the slush pool team uh, or brains team uh, also developed uh, in collaboration with Matt Corallo, the Stratum V2 protocol. Um, and so the idea is that will help kind of redistribute um, the responsibility and and miners will have the ability to uh, d- to choose on which transaction set they would be working. Um, now, a lot of people argue that, um, you know, it's it's not, there is no economic advantage for mining pools to do that. So the figure that we have in the right report might just be a bit more of like, you know, PR advertising, if you like, for miners and mining pools to show that they are willing to handle control back to miners. Uh, but it's interesting to see that these discussions are happening and that solutions are being provided to some of to solve some of these uh, centralization problem. Right. So, how far do you think these uh, discussions have gone in in addressing those concerns of uh, excessive centralization of mining activity? I think pretty pretty far. Um, and again, when when looking at the pool level, um, you know, one common argument is also to say that. As soon as miner feels that a pool is gaining too much control over uh, Bitcoin hash power, they will switch to another pool. And that seems to still hold true. Um, and that's why we've been able to maintain this check and balances system so far. Um, I think there is also a great deal of discussion happening about the centralization of uh, hardware manufacturing. And so that's why, for instance, we saw this um, micro BT announcement. Uh, so I think it's it's definitely you know being on the table um, and yeah the industry seems to be looking for ways to improve that decent- uh, that centralization issues. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the report, um, you've updated your estimate of crypto asset users from 35 million people around the world in 2018 to 101 million unique users now. Are you surprised at this growth in in what's been a relatively flat or even a bear market for some? 
cryptocurrency prices if we you know compare with late 2017 early 2018 um i would say yes and no at the same time because we i mean we definitely saw a lot of announcement from companies through that this crypto winter period announcing that you know they onboarded more users etc and and the reason also why there's such a growth in our users figure is simply because um so we the, the proxy for unique users is uh, the number of uh, id uh, id verified accounts um and so since 2018 there's been an increase in um the the number of firms that perform kyc checks on their users so right. necessarily that has also increase the number of users they've been able to identify and link to to, to an account. So that's also why you have this uh, this massive growth. And so probably our estimate of 2018 is uh, below what what the really reality was at this time. Okay. Um, thank you for explaining that. Um, one thing that struck me in the report uh, about the trading activity in, in cryptocurrencies is that you, you, you pointed out that um, a lot of the... Um, Middle Eastern and African companies involved in cryptocurrency uh, trading and other services have clients that are that are from Europe, and and also Latin American companies have clients from North America. What's it, what explains this uh, this this? It, well, let's perhaps turn it around. Why are the clients in Europe and North America doing their business in you know Middle East and, Af- and Africa for the Europeans and in Latin America for the North Americans? So one possible explanatory factor is. The presence of diaspora, um, and so knowing that a lot of uh, Middle Eastern African firms are serving uh, some of their customers that are based abroad, and similarly for Latin America, that are serving uh, people based out of North America. Uh, so that's one possible explanation. For North American firm, um, we also saw some of these big firms having a very, uh, you know, aggressive internationalization strategy, opening um, offices and, and facilities in other uh, continents. So that might explain why they are also um, having such a geographically div- diversified uh, customer base. Uh, but it's again, it's something that we wish to investigate further. Um, and but for that, we would need to have more granular data, which we are not able to access yet because the sample size is too small. Uh, but yeah, over the next years, we'll really try to kind of create more granular information about this customer-based distribution because it would be quite interesting to see how this match um, other studies that have come out recently. So you might have seen the chain, al- chain analysis uh, geographic report looking at the... Uh, adoption of cryptocurrencies across the world. And so they do a country-by-country uh, country analysis, uh, but they primarily rely on on-chain data. So it's, yeah, we're, we're really curious to see how the off-chain data we're collecting through these surveys kind of match yeah. those uh, findings as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, how big a challenge is it to collect this off-chain data given that you're reliant on, you know, exchanges information or, 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 or you know, uh, peer-to-peer marketplace information or even payment services yeah it's uh, the, the difficulty is like we have no way of double checking uh, yeah. and verifying the data so we have to trust um you know this self-reported data but we have mean i mean as we collect more data over the years we have uh, the ability to actually cross-check you know compare it to a previous year sample um and there should be some sort of consistency across the year oh, i mean like you know not at least for the companies who took the survey uh, every every year, so yeah, that's that's something we have to rely uh, on, and hopefully, yeah, in the coming years, we'll have the ability to 
better verify or having alternative methods to, to double check that as well. Yeah, you, let's uh, a question about stable coins. You've you've um, you've noticed. Uh, I mean, you've pointed out in the report that the there's been a, a sharp rise in stable coin activity, and also there's been a uh, as part of that there's been a, a, a quite a big in, increase in support for tether by service providers. Now, tether you know, ha, has had some controversial um, moments. Let's say you know its uh, its asset backing was was. Uh, has been reported not to be 100%, uh, but it's still gone from strength to strength, and over the last couple of years has increased from you know three billion in in uh, in, in tethers outstanding to 14 or 15 billion now. What, what do you make of this uh, you know increase in in use of tether and the sharp increase in support by service providers? Yeah, I think that's very much aligning as with the the figures you pointed out that more values are being transacted using stable coins uh, than you know any other cryptocurrencies. Um, so historically, you know, traders have used stable coins to uh, arbitrage between the different exchanges. Um, we know some traders have also used it for like a short-term storage of wealth. Uh, but what was interesting is that since early this year, since especially since the price crash in March 2020, um, the um, traders have been, or you know, businesses have also been using uh, stable coins more often to meet any liquidity needs uh, and avoid any uh, exposure to highly volatile market like in other cryptocurrencies uh, markets. So I think that's supposed to grow and especially as we have you know more and more proposal coming out for for other type of stable coins. Right. So that that that, that basically that that part of the crypto asset market activities is now staying based within the perimeter of crypto assets but just goes out of the assets into stable coins and then back again. It doesn't. It's kind of becoming separate from the fiat system. Mm-hmm, precisely. And and what's interesting is that um, service providers also perceive that as you know the the next big future developments that might have an impact on on their operation and business business models. Yeah. So yeah, definitely a trend that is worth uh, watching. Yeah. In, in the report, you pointed out that the you know the the progressive adoption of um, know your customer and, uh, and this kind of uh, identification of clients by exchanges has has has, uh, has moved crypto asset markets you know, in the direction of the traditional financial market. At the same time, you point out that the uh, OTC, over-the-counter market share of trading is still probably two or three times that conducted on exchange. So what do you, what do you make of that split? And, and, and in turn, does that the fact that most trading still takes place on a bilateral basis does that defeat the work of the, the of the people who are trying to push all um, crypto asset activity into a kind of lit uh, format and identifying all the participants in the in the exchanges? Actually, a lot of actors who offer OTC services do perform KYC checks on their um, on their you know clients. So. Uh, right. You would have like I don't know big liquidity or market makers like BTC two, so they only engage with uh, you know clients who's they who's they verified the the identity. So uh, it doesn't necessarily means that yeah trades are happening OTC are necessarily uh, trades that are not being uh, that are being uh, taking place between you know uh, unknown actors. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's a uh, so there's there's not necessarily. Uh, this is not necessarily trading that's gone, going on completely outside the the um, the scope of the traditional financial markets authorities. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
Um, in in your um, report, you you make the you draw the conclusion that um, the that the whole kind of structure of trading, the the post trade activities, in, in, including custody and clearing and settlement, are beginning to resemble what goes on in the traditional financial markets. People are using the separate crypto custodians, um, uh, and they're doing they're separating duties after trades have taken place in a similar way to um, how banks do it for let's say share and bond trading is it going to do you think it's going to the crypto market is going to resemble the financial the traditional markets completely or is there, are there are there going to be some significant differences in the way this is structured in future i think there, there will still be some differences but i think in certain uh, geographic industry will evolve to resemble more the traditional financial market just for the sole reasons that some of these actors are trying to attract uh, institutional investors um, and so for that, they you know, probably need um, the institutional investors to be more familiar with the structure of these um, of, of these new new markets. Um, and so that's something that has been quite discussed as well in North America, for instance, when discussing institutional investors' interest into in, in crypto asset markets. Um, and so this decoupling of duties between uh, you know custody and settlement and clearing is just one step. Um, we might see further further developments towards that trend. Um, some people are arguing, for instance, that you know the recent boom in uh, prime brokerage services might also be a, um, a signal of, of this uh, resemblance towards more traditional financial markets. Uh, so again, I think it's something that might occur in, in, in future years. Yeah, it's just that a lot of people in cryptocurrency have always said that if you don't control your own keys, they're not really your... Your coins. So I'm just wondering whether the the self custody element of crypto crypto assets and cryptocurrency will will always stay you know a bigger thing. You don't expect people to yeah. custody their own their own shares and bonds, but yeah, you would do. It's it's a, that's the whole paradox about the crypto asset industry, right? Cryptocurrency yeah. were created for people to be able to self custody their assets, but in the meantime, people don't seem to trust themselves enough, so they have to rely yeah. on the third party to to custody their funds. Um, so I think I mean I. You know, at the retail level, if people can self-custody, uh, I mean, there are solutions for people to self-custody, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if some of these solutions take off uh, and have taken off already. When it comes to businesses or, you know, banks or any other financial institution holding crypto assets, there is very limited chance that they will ever self-custody. They will most likely enter in what we call, uh, you know, co-managed custody, where um, they hold a private key or a set of private keys and the uh, crypto asset custodians also hold a set of private keys and there is this sort of like quorum that has to be met for funds to be moved. Um, so I think, the, and this is what we classify as non-custodial so far. Um, but yeah, the idea is having is that both parties need to agree to be able to move funds. And so that's probably the type of custody offering that will suit businesses and, and other financial institutions that get involved in crypto assets. So it's not possible to depart completely from the idea of having a trusted entity to get involved with helping you manage your crypto assets. Again, as for, for retail or uh, like an individual, uh, yeah, that's feasible. But I think for a business where you need to have, you know, so many uh, uh, representative of the organization being involved in, in moving funds, I think it's a little bit unrealistic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what are you focusing on most for next year's study? 
That is a good question. Uh, so hopefully we'll carry on. Sorry to ask. I know you've just finished the last one. You probably would like a break, but. Oh, uh... uh, no, 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 no. Uh, actually, it's always like this, right? We, but it's, it's good because when we release a study, we collect a lot of feedback that also help us, um, you know, design or refine some of the questions we had in the service. So it's actually really good to have, uh, you know, fresh uh, ideas to, to be able to, to move on to the next uh, next study. So yeah, hopefully in doing the same one, um, I personally would like to have a bit more focus on the mining industry because I think still a lot of data is needed for uh, for that part of the ecosystem. Um, and then we'll also carry on with this mining research project where uh, you know we had pools contributing data to uh, identify the geographic distribution of Bitcoin hash power. So we're hoping to onboard more pools to contribute to that research as well. Um, yeah, I think that's... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll have plenty of other projects coming up, but uh, that's the two okay. that we have. Okay. Well, I okay, well, as somebody who you know follows the sector, I'd like to say thank you very much for your great reports. It's an excellent uh, uh, service for everybody, uh, you know, following cryptocurrency, and uh, it's a very helpful well, um, asset to have. Thank you very much for helping us update <laughs> the findings. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, thank you for your, thanks for your, thanks for your time, Apolline. Look forward to staying in touch. Thank you very much. Bye. Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. Money is changing fast. It's moving more quickly and cheaply. It's becoming more intelligent and more transparent. At the same time, it's becoming more complex and for many of us, more annoying. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so in two ways. On the right-hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com, you can find a link to our Patreon account, p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash newmoneyreview. There you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage. Thank you.